0: Well, last weekend we hosted the first half of the Lions game here. Turns out we should have hosted both half of the Lions game here. Uh, Condolences to all the Lions fans and really to all of America because who wants to see next weekend's Super Bowl? Um, We are back in our Sacred Garden series in the Song of Solomon. Um, Really, truly, uh, we've been talking about sex, dating, relationships, marriage. Um, I think for some of us, This might be a little bit tense at times. Um, Just a fair warning, if you have children in here today that you've not had conversations with about sex and sexuality, um, and if you're a guest here this morning, uh, just reading through the passage today is going to be pretty graphic in in nature. And so we're going to get into some of the inner workings of a honeymoon night. And so, uh, yeah, we'll be talking about the birds and the bees, and I'll just keep saying that. Um, but as I read through the passage this morning, and as I pray before we jump into the passage, um, it would be an opportunity for you as a parent, if you have not had uh, conversations about intimacy, sex, and sexuality within marriage, uh, it might be a time for you to slip out with your child and plug them into one of the uh, offerings that we have. We are not uh, prohibiting kids from being present. Uh, that is, we're just allowing you as a parent to have the discretion of whether or not your child should be in here. Um, We have been talking about um, sex and sexuality in marriage through the Sacred Garden series in the Song of Solomon. And this morning, we're going to be talking specifically about the honeymoon. We talked last week about the wedding ceremony as we closed out that chapter. And and this week, we're going to be talking about the honeymoon. They kind of slow down and zoom in on the intimate moment within marriage where they consummate their marriage. So if you have a Bible, please open to Song of Solomon chapter 4. We're going to be looking uh, really at the entirety of chapter 4, in the beginning even, of chapter 5. And as you make your way there, I'll just kind of recap for us. Uh, Last week we talked about longings the longings and the desires, we saw this dream that was more of a nightmare. We talked about fear of separation and fear of loneliness, the anxiety and the fear that can be produced in separation within marriage, long-distance relationships. Uh, We talked about how to find really those longings satisfied within marriage, and ultimately how we find that longing satisfied in Christ Jesus Himself. So once again, we left we left off last week by looking at King Solomon coming out of the wilderness. He was on his carriage. He's being carried by his mighty men, and then we see the wedding ceremony. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at their wedding night. Uh, Song of Solomon chapter four. If you found your place there, I'm going to invite you to stand alongside of me as I read God's word for us this morning. Song of Solomon chapter four says this: "Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful." Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, All of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards." You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon." A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates. With all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. With all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake. O north wind and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is God's word. You can take your seat. I'd suggest we pray. Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your word. Father, you and I both know that I sin, that I fall short often of your glory, and yet, Jesus, I thank you that it's because of your righteousness that I can stand here and proclaim your truth this morning. Jesus, I do pray that you would exalt yourself among us this morning. Lord, through the beauty and the power that we have just read about and the imagery that it evokes, Lord, we ask that we would hold high the marriage bed in high honor, Jesus, this morning. Spirit, I pray that you would fill and empower me now, that I would speak clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word for the accomplishment of your will and the encouragement of this body, Lord, that your kingdom would advance through all generations. And Jesus, I just pray for those, Lord, who are coming into this conversation, Lord, perhaps with a background that is that is conflicted, Lord, about sex and sexuality. Lord, I pray that you would correct, that you would comfort all of us and allow us to see the beauty and the power that you have given us in this blessed gift of sex within marriage. We thank you and pray this all in your mighty name, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. There are some passages of scripture that after kind of reading them, I'm just thinking like as a preacher, I would love if I just read it and I just said, and may the Spirit apply this to our hearts. Go in peace, right? This is pretty descriptive. It's very descriptive, but here's what I want to submit to you this morning and kind of the big idea or the gospel takeaway for us is that when we talk about the bees and the the birds and the bees, there are actually five Bs that we're going to see in this passage this morning of making love great, making love great or making love great again, if I can use that phrase. Five Bs of making love great and making it great again. Number one, what we see in the beginning of this passage in the first seven verses is that he is highly verbally generous. He's very descriptive about the beauty of his wife. So like we've talked about before, the first B is to be generous verbally. This is for for the fellas. We're reading him describing the beauty of his wife. He starts off in verse 1. Behold. Anytime you hear the word behold in scripture, it means pay attention, listen up, look here. And what he's saying to his wife is, wow, wow, You're beautiful. He repeats it twice in order to emphasize it. You are unbelievable. But here's where he gives us a little bit more of a guide, fellas, in how we're to speak to our bride, how we're to speak to our wives, how we're to speak to our beloved. He doesn't just say, You're super pretty, he's very descriptive in how he describes her beauty. There is freedom and permission that he's going to give us here in the first seven verses in how he describes her beauty. He's descriptive, he's not grotesque, and he uses poetry in order to describe her, okay? He starts off with the eyes. He says, your eyes are like two doves. Now, here's here's what we see. In this passage, it's not that he's just giving an inventory, right? Uh, Eyes, check. Ears, check. Nose, check. Hair, check. Fawns, check, right? That's not, he's not just giving an inventory of intimacy, right? He's not just doing like looking at the shelves and seeing what's there. He's actually looking her entire body from her head all the way down her body, and he is absolutely floored with her beauty. Consistently throughout the Song of Solomon. We read about the vineyard and the garden, and it's a picture of their love life together and intimacy. But here, he's talking specifically about her body as being a garden. And he is describing all that comes with it. And he is blessed by it, and so he is being verbally generous in how he approaches to talk about her beauty. Your eyes are like two doves hidden behind a veil. What is this talking about? What is he describing? You can imagine for this virgin gal on her wedding night, she is looking through her veil at her beloved, and he looks through her veil at her, and he sees her eyes bashfully blinking like doves that are, that are, that are fluttering its wings, and he says, you're so gorgeous. It's amazing how unbelievably captivated the heart of a man can be simply by looking at the eyes of a woman. God has blessed women with this power and this ability to captivate the heart of man. And that's what's happening here. He starts with the eyes. He says, your eyes are like doves behind your veil. And then he describes her hair. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Some of these things are lost in translation. Someone's whistling in the front row. (laughs) Easy, tiger. Easy. (laughs) You're... (laughs) Your hair is like a flock of goats. Uh, I'm just gonna go ahead, fellas, and submit this this morning. Don't use this one, all right, to flatter your wife, all right? Oh, your hair is like a flock of goats. It might've worked for Solomon, not for you. What is he saying? You can imagine her hair is done up. She's all dressed up from the wedding ceremony. And here now, the pins are being removed. Her hair is being undone. And just like a flock that he would see as a shepherd boy looking at a mountainside from a distance, he sees them cascading down the mountain. And what he's describing is the beauty of her hair as it drapes down her shoulders. But he is using imagery that is powerful so that she knows that her hair is absolutely captivating to him. I think sometimes, guys, when we tell our wives they're beautiful, we think that that's just a blanket statement that's enough. Sometimes we need to be more descriptive. And what Solomon is giving us here is permission, He's giving us permission and the freedom to actually describe for our wives what it is that we find so beautiful about them. He says, your hair. He says... Your teeth, again, some of these things are lost in translation. What does he say about our teeth? Your teeth are like, again, a flock of shorn ewes that come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. What is he saying? He's saying your smile is brilliant. It's radiant, and it's beautiful. And your teeth are white. They're glistening, and, bonus, you have all of them. I think we take for granted dental hygiene and dentists and orthodontists in our day and age. But what he's saying is, your smile is radiant and powerful. It's beautiful. It wasn't uncommon that guys would sometimes marry gals from the country, which she's a country gal, that they would marry, and maybe all of them wouldn't have their teeth. They'd be looking more like, I don't know, a front defenseman for the Red Wings, okay? Maybe not all of them there. But he's saying, you're perfect, your smile is brilliant, it's radiant, it's powerful. It draws me in. it captivates my heart. He is going through her entire, her entire being and he's describing the power of her presence and all that he sees. He talks about her lips. It's like scarlet thread. Your cheeks like pomegranate. Again, these are evoking images, deep red, soft red. And then we get to another confusing one. What does he say? He says... Your neck, verse 4, look with me. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. What must he mean, right? Hey, guys, again, I wouldn't say, hey, you look like your neck is like a tower, right? What are you saying? You look like a giraffe, you know? Like, (laughs) what are we trying to get at here? So the Tower of David, right? What he describes here, hang on it, a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. What he's describing about her neck is that it's statuesque. But it's also unconquerable. David's tower stood out as a work of art. It was a piece of beauty. It was powerful. And all who came by it would revere it, not only for the fact that it was a work of art, but also that it was mighty and nobody could conquer the tower of David. So what is he saying? He's saying, your beauty is unconquerable. And just like the defenses of David were impenetrable, so you, my bride, are to me. Like a statue, like this pure, beautiful, powerful image that we all would associate with being unconquerable. You are unassailable and you are beautiful, my love. He is describing his beloved. And so here's the thing, fellas. Here's a a great lesson for us. Again, all throughout the Song of Solomon, we are reading about them verbally praising one another. But most of the time that the man is speaking, He is celebrating and praising his wife, but here he is highly descriptive, and yet he veils all of the descriptions with this beautiful, powerful imagery. Guys, it's okay not only to tell your wife that she's beautiful and lovely. If you're not doing that already, boy, have you got a lesson to learn, all right? You shouldn't only be just praising her generally. You're so beautiful. Tell her how. How am I beautiful? What do you find beautiful about me? You know, uh, there was a time actually where Andrew and I, uh, in our relationship, there was a minor conflict. Everything was seemingly great, but there was just kind of this undercurrent that something wasn't exactly right. And I remember describing to her, like, I, I, you're so pretty, you're, you're beautiful. And then, and then I was just like, you know, I feel like sometimes you think that when we rock, walk in a room together, that, that somehow you, you would think that I'm not proud to be standing next to you. There's just is this tension or this weird feeling that I would get said, I just want you to know that every time I walk into a room, when you're standing next to me, I'm unbelievably blessed that you're by my side. And I want everybody to see your beauty as I do. And and honestly, she responded. She was like, wow, thank you. Now, Now, for me, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, I think that about you. Of course I think that about you. But because I had never spoken that to her, it left a gap. Fellas, if there is in your mind and your wife's mind a gap in communication about how much you love her and what it is that you love about her, in praising her beauty, in detail and in powerful imagery, you need to close that gap. Be verbally generous in order to be making great love again. Number two, second B, be gentle. Be gentle. Verse number five, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Again, metaphors. This one is a bit troubling, right? I'm not sure what is going on here, right? Why two fawns? What, what are we doing here? If you think about how you would approach a fawn, this actually is going to apply for the next two be. Be gentle, and the next one's going to be be sensitive. Um, I remember one pastor describing and saying that he believes that this is the most inspired text of all of Scripture. Um, I would agree with him. <laughs> but here's, what, here's what's going on here, and here's how it's so instructive for us. When he's talking about fawns, you have to think about how you would approach a fawn. If any of you have ever been hunting or you know uh, anything about deer at all, when you approach deer, you don't want to kind of run up to him and go, rah, right? So here's what I want you to understand, guys. Be gentle, be sensitive. Takeaway: Don't spook the fawns. <laughs> okay. So here's what I mean by that. Every single commentator that I came across to mentions the idea of tenderness, being delicate, being gentle. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we touched on a verse that talks about the mountains of of Bethar. Here. Solomon describes the same area of his wife's body as a mountain of myrrh or a hill of frankincense. So this is talking about the same thing, and it's veiling it in this beautiful and powerful imagery, but what he's talking about here is the ability to be gentle and to be sensitive. This is what's being talked about here. Gentle touches, gentle caresses, this is what's being described here. Gentleness has to be our approach within intimacy to marriage. Right, so so when you are approaching your bride, and this is important for some of you guys to understand, that when you're approaching your bride, uh, I think some of us in our minds we can have the wrong conceptions about how sexual intimacy should be within marriage. You don't want to spook the fonts when you approach your bride. You want to approach with gentleness, and this is exactly what this imagery is evoking. It's very specific in talking about the fonts. You don't want them to just run off. Okay, so. So here's what I'll say. When it comes to sex and sexual intimacy within marriage, some of us may have conceptions in our minds who are unmarried and we're engaged or looking to be married one day of what sex is going to be like within marriage all the time. This is more of a comment and commentary on our culture than it is about what Scripture actually gives us as a blessing and as a gift within marriage. It won't always be the same exact way. And here's what C.S. Lewis actually describes some of this in regards to how intimacy within his marriage actually worked. Here's what he says. He says, "We feasted on love, every mode of it, Solomon Mary, romantic and realistic, sometimes as dramatic as a thunderstorm, and sometimes comfortable and unemphatic as putting on your soft slippers." She was my pupil and my teacher my subject and my sovereign, my trusty comrade, friend, shipmate, fellow soldier, my mistress, but at the same time, all that any man friend has ever been to me. When you're talking about sexual intimacy within marriage and having sex in marriage, I want us to understand, especially those of you who are looking towards marriage and, look, and, and are engaged, that there is a gentle approach that the world does not depict for you. Solomon says, like fonts. You don't approach fonts hastily. You approach with gentleness. You don't approach with harsh, domineering fashion. You approach with gentleness. I think some of uh, our young guys, you've waited and waited and waited for your wedding night, and if you don't understand how to be gentle, you may scandalize your wife for weeks, maybe even months, maybe even years. Our culture has so pornified sex that young men may think that their first night is supposed to look like a rodeo, but it's going to be more like a tea party. The best tea party you'll ever be at in your life, mind you. But if you have the wrong conception, here's where Solomon's words can actually correct and re-instruct us on how we approach intimacy within marriage. He says, like fawns. How do you approach fawns? With gentleness. How do you approach fawns? Number, m- number three, to be sensitive. Be sensitive. You approach with sensitivity in regards to timing and also in regards to how to lead up. When you're approaching fawns, when you're approaching uh, deer, you want to utilize tactics. And here's what he's describing here. When you approach, you're approaching with gentleness. You're also approaching with sensitivity. In regards to sensitivity, there's timing when the fawns are going to be ready to come out and play, and there's other times when the fawns are going to not be ready to come out and play. The timing and the mood aren't always going to be there. You don't want to spook the fawns. okay? Not every time that you're in the mood will your wife be in the mood and potentially vice versa. Now, for men, it's going to be a lot easier to get us going, to get our engines kind of revved up for this moment. You can see as the tension builds throughout the text and as he describes, this guy's going to get himself worked up into a lather. He is so excited about what God has given him and his bride. But here's the thing, fellas. You've got to understand that the timing, timing, you've got to be sensitive. Sometimes your wife's just not going to be into it. Not tonight, honey. And that, that needs to be okay. You need to be all right with that. At other times, you'll be really into a game. You'll be totally locked in on what you're doing. And while sometimes she may not feel like it, there will be other times where she will seemingly attack you, and you may think that she's been drinking all day long. (laughs) But by your being sensitive in the moments where it's not right and the timing just isn't there, by you understanding your wife and living with her, as Peter instructs, as the weaker vessel, being understanding in the way that you live with her, by being sensitive in those moments you will actually gain that camaraderie and that fellowship that C.S. Lewis describes. When we think about how we would approach our bride, when it comes to intimacy, we also not only need to think about timing and being sensitive, but also it's helpful, guys, listen up to use signals. I was listening to a radio show a few years ago, probably about five, six years ago, and they actually were talking about this on the radio. They were talking about, They they were talking about this on Christian radio. They were talking about what signals parents would give to one another in order to kind of prime the pump throughout the day. One listener called in. She said, every time my dad would get home, he would either say, hi, honey, or he would say, hey, honey, I've got a dollar I need to spend. And the wife would respond, I know exactly where to put that dollar. You should be laughing. This is church, all right? <laughs> and they would take that dollar, and they would, they would actually put it in a jar to save up, right? And they would save up for anniversary dates for one another. But as she explained this, I thought, she was describing her parents' generation, and I thought, man, you know, subliminally, if I think about hearing that all the time, and then as I got older, being able to connect the dots, it's no wonder why millennials want digital currency so rapidly, all right? <laughs> Ew, I don't want to think about dollars, mom and dad, right? But what they were doing was forming a habit that they would signal to one another that they were excited to see each other, and they're so excited to see one another even more later in the day. Guys, if you are not using signals, you're not being sensitive. You can't just drop in like an anvil, come in like a tornado, and expect everything to go exactly the way you want. Your expectations and her reality need to come into alignment. And the way to be sensitive is through understanding timing and also through understanding using signals. The, number, the, the fourth way and the fourth B of making great love is to be adventurous. Yes, you heard me, be adventurous. In between services, I had a gentleman approach me and said, man, when you were talking about being adventurous, I almost went out in the parking lot and laid the back seat down. I said, whoa, dude, not in church, all right? Not in church. But he was getting the point. Verse 8, look with me. He said, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from me from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. Now what's interesting is he's already beholding her beauty. He just described her eyes and her hair and her shoulders. He describes her body in very descriptive and beautiful poetic ways that are, that are a blessing for her to hear. So why all of a sudden is she so far away and so far off? Why all of a sudden is she coming away from Lebanon and these mountaintops that are majestic and powerful and beautiful? Why all of a sudden is she surrounded by lions and leopards? I'll tell you why. Because there is an exploration that he is inviting her on that has absolutely nothing to do with mountains or lions or leopards. You see, God has beautifully and wonderfully gifted women with an aura and a power. Now, guys, I want you to remember, when you were originally seeing your bride, you saw a gal that captivated your heart, that drew you out, and you were like, wow, I don't know a single dude who wasn't intimidated in some way, shape, or form about asking a girl out on a date. Women, your power, your beauty is a powerful mystique that surrounds you. And as you grow up and as you mature, it only gets more and more powerful where you are desirable, and yet in some sense, you're unreachable. And untouchable. How many times have we seen this play out in teenage dramas where the guy's stumbling over himself trying to speak to a girl, doesn't have the right words, everything comes out wrong? This is what Solomon is describing here. Your beauty that I am now describing, I am inviting you away from what is safe and known. There is within this poem, in this context, linguistically, there, there are a few different ways that you can find associations for this. And when you look at the culture and you look at other ancient texts, this kind of description is what would be given from a man to a goddess who is on a mountaintop, who again is protected by these lions and leopards. And the beauty and the power of what he's talking about is he's saying, you are like a goddess to me, and my desire is for you to come down into the vineyard and into the garden. He is inviting her into an adventure of love. He is is inviting her into an adventure of love. Now, here's the thing. I got four girls and two boys. And I know, and I am excited for the moment when guys try and pursue my girls. Because I know they're going to be terrified when they come over to my house. And I relish those moments already. And here's what they, they may not know. That those guys who would desire to come over to our house, as they approach our house, the Hughes house, the Hughes girls. What they don't know is I got a son who is like a leopard and the other one is even like a lion. He's like a Tasmanian devil, right? (laughs) Get him, right? I'm excited for that. But here's the thing to take away and to understand, guys. Initially, there can be fear in that first wedding night. Everything I'm describing to you is going to be for you on your first wedding night a specific blueprint of how Solomon pursues his bride. He gets to the point where he praises her. No doubt her heart is filled with love and desiring him, but there is no doubt also a fear within her. And he is inviting her to come down and to experience love and passion together. And it is beautiful and it is godly and it is right and it is good to experience that. This part not only plays out initially at the outset of a wedding. But from then on, within marriage, there is a constant cycle of remembering men that we are married and we get to partner with and live alongside of this beautiful pinnacle of God's creation that came after us that is supposed to be cherished by us. The mystique and the beauty and the power of our wives. There is a cycle of mystery and intimacy that is sacred, and it should be shared. And this is nodding to the experience of that exhilarating and yet unknown moment, not only on the wedding night, but also should be continually experienced within marriage, repeatedly to recapture the essence of that exhilaration. Here's how one commentator puts this specific verse. He summarizes it by saying, in any relationship, the element of unpredictability can be both stimulating and alarming. Its absence may indicate that we have degenerated into a passive, boring, amoeba-like existence. If that describes your love life, passive, boring, and amoeba-like, you have a blessed homework project to take home. It is to invite your wife to come down, to remember her power in her beauty and the mystique, and to invite her into the vineyard. Number five, the fifth B is to be generous physically. In verses 9 through 5-1, we see him get so worked up. You've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with even one glance of your eyes. He goes from describing her and then inviting her into a place where he is simply overwhelmed by her beauty, and he is desiring her. He stops describing her, and he begins to describe his desire of her. How much better is your love than wine, in verse 10, like fragrance, the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips are dripping with nectar. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And as he explains and describes this, it lays before us what he will eventually, in the culmination and consummation of their marriage, enjoy. He describes here in verse 12 what it is that kind of is part and parcel to this whole whole series. He says, A garden locked is my sister. My bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. When we think about the beauty of our wives, men, and for those of you who are single and you think about the beauty of a woman, you need to understand that there is a locked garden, a locked fountain. All that would flow in your love life together, in your marriage, should be something that should be seen as being locked and shut down Beforehand. But even within marriage, there is this constant desire that we would have that we would actually be opening up that locked garden in in our ability to pursue with verbal, generous language, with being sensitive, with being gentle. In all of these ways, when we pursue our wives, when we pursue our spouses, in all of these ways, we are actually pursuing in order to unlock. This invitational language is bringing him to a point where he's saying, You're like a locked garden. And as he describes her, he describes a garden that is filled in such a way that no gardener would fill it. He says, There's henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, frankincense, myrrh, oils, all choice spices. This garden that he's describing is not one that any gardener would curate. It's the most powerful and potent, beautiful, fragrant smells and everything that you could enjoy in one specific garden. I don't know if you've ever been in the mall and you've walked past Sephora, right? And you smell it from the time you walk into the mall until the time you walk out. But he's saying it's so overpowering. Every desirable spice is what he's mentioning right here. He's getting to the place where his heart is so filled with love for her that he desires her. And this is good and it's godly. And what is her response to all of the description? What does she say to it? In verse 16, we read this phrase, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. He is saying, I am desiring to have you. I am desiring for someone to, something, some wind to blow you my direction. And what does she say in response? Look at the end of chapter 4. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choices, fruits. Here's the thing to remember, gals. We talked about this a little bit last week. We'll touch on it here. When we get married, we give ourselves to one another. We give ourselves in order to become one flesh. There's no longer two, there's one. This is what Jesus says. From the beginning, two shall become one flesh. That means my body doesn't belong to me anymore. And what she says perfectly describes this. She says to him, let my beloved come to his garden. Whose is it? His garden. She is willing to give herself fully and totally to him. She's saying, touch me, hold me, please me, do what you want with me. I am your garden. This garden belongs to you. And these are the moments of incredible joy within marriage that God has designed for our enjoyment. As much as He has made our taste buds for the sweetness of honey, so too he ha- has He designed our bodies for the pleasures of intimacy. To, to her calling Him into the garden, here's what He responds with. Verse one, He says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey, and I drank my wine with my milk. What is he describing? The consummation of their marriage. She says, let my beloved come to his garden. He's saying, I came to my garden. I've I've gathered all that God has given me in this garden, and I have enjoyed it, and I am satisfied. When we think about... The bees of making love great. We have to see that within this wedding night depiction, there's powerful imagery that is both veiled and direct. And what we can conclude is that in all of these bees, God desires us to make love and to make love great. It's good and it's godly. Talking with a guy uh, a little bit earlier, and and he said, uh, yeah, it's almost like for years and years and years, I heard sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad, and then as soon as you get married, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Sex is always good. It's always good. It's always good. But within the marriage context is where God has actually called for it to be participated in and activated. When we consider Solomon's pursuit of his bride, we get to a place where in, five, in chapter 5, in verse 1, after this consummation takes place, if you look with me at the very end of verse 1, it says, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Many commentators are confused as to who's speaking here. You know, They just got done consummating their marriage, and all of a sudden, somebody else is in the room with them saying, Eat and drink and be drunk with love. What's going on here? I believe um, that Dr. John MacArthur is right in his assessment. As many other commentators mention, I believe this is the voice of God because only the voice of God can speak to give blessing over what he has created as good within the context of marriage. He says, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Again, I almost named this entire series Love Drunk. Yeah, I changed it because I recognized wrong congregation probably, right? sacred garden. This gets at the same exact point. God is telling them to have their fill of one another. And when we read that, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love, here's what we got to recognize, that there is a satisfaction that we find within sexual intimacy. And it's something that points to a, a joy that we desire and a joy that we long, long for that will only ever be satisfied by Christ Jesus himself. Whereas last week we talked about longings, this week we talk all about satisfaction and the fulfillment of this union and how we see them being fulfilling within their union. In Ephesians 3, uh, Ephesians 5, Paul actually talks about the union of a man and a woman in this profound mystery as it relates to, the, to Christ and the church. And this union that we can experience as a high point in our life, in, in consummation, in, in sexual intimacy within marriage, is ultimately something that points forward to a full future culminating joy and celebration that we have in eternity. John Piper talks about this. He says this: "Just as the heavens are telling the glory of God's power and beauty, so sexual climax is telling the glory of immeasurable delights that we will have with Christ in the age to come. There will be no marriage there, but what marriage means will be there. And the pleasures of marriage, 10 to the millionth power, will be there. When we drink of love in this life, we only begin to scratch the surface of what drinking the cup of new wine and eternal life will be like in the life to come. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day, that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When we read that there are at God's right hand treasures forevermore, we have the joy of having a taste And a foreshadow of what we will drink of forevermore in the union of one man and one woman, which God has blessed. And this book presents that as a sacred garden. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Father, we thank you that you've given us the ability to delight Lord, spouses one in another. And Father, we just ask that you would elevate Lord, our perspective and our view of sex, Lord, that we would hold the marriage bed in high honor and that because we hold the marriage bed in high honor, we also will instruct a wicked generation and a crooked world that misuses and abuses sex and completely misses the ultimate foreshadowing, Jesus, that, that we will be with you forever and that in you we will have joys forevermore. We thank you, Jesus, that we have this promise. We thank you, Lord, that we will one day share the cup together. We thank you and pray this all in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.